welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YGBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic and through the YGBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue of subject matter. This YJBM sex education episode is part of our series devoted to our 2020 issue on sex and reproduction. I'm your co-host, Felicia Hong, a second year graduate student in environmental health sciences. And I'm Chelsea Shu, a fifth year grad student in the interdepartmental neuroscience program. In this episode of the YJBM podcast, we will be diving into sex for pleasure and the interesting facts as to why sex isn't for reproduction only. So when thinking about why humans have sex, the first thing that comes to mind for me is babies. It seems to make sense that we as a species would want to reproduce to carry on our continued existence. But it's actually a myth that reproduction is the primary reason for sex. After all, people continue having sex after having kids and also while not wanting any at all. In fact, most of the sex happening around the world right now is not for the goal of reproduction. Studies show that the most common reasons to have sex include, I was attracted to the person, it feels good, I wanted to experience physical pleasure, I realized I was in love, the person made me feel sexy, my hormones were out of control, and it's fun or exciting. So there are various motivations for having sex, but let's go back to wanting sex and pleasure from it. In the brain, there's a dopamine circuit for reward. You may have heard a friend say that they got their dopamine hit from eating a chocolate bar. There's actually some truth to that. This circuit includes the ventral tegmental area or VTA of the midbrain and parts of the basal ganglia like the nucleus accumbens and ventral pallidum. Together, these areas mediate motivation, behavior, emotions, and that feel-good response for everything, from sex to gambling to food and drugs. So now that Chelsea has talked a little bit more, a little bit about why humans have sex, I'm going to go into what orgasms are and how they play a role in sex, since, you know, arousal is pretty important in sex and having good sex. So there's a myth. I want to bust before we start is that women can't get pregnant if she doesn't have an orgasm. That is very untrue. I don't know where you have all been hearing that, but it isn't true. So I'm going to first go into what orgasms are and just a definition based on the research and the bio around it. So orgasm typically, but not always, results from rhythmic stimulation of body parts with high concentrations of sensory receptors. The stimulation is typically achieved with either physical manipulation of the genitals from body to body contact or sometimes from mechanical devices. So that would be sex toys. So although orgasm producing activities are usually forced on the genitals, orgasms can be achieved by stimulating other body parts and sometimes even through thought alone. But you know, sexual arousal itself is rewarding and likely common to the sexuality of all mammals. And studies of animals have shown that sex- sexual arousal is rewarding even when sexual intercourse doesn't occur. And also in behaviorist terms, orgasms are a primary reinforcer, a pleasurable unconditioned stimulus that without any classical, classically conditioned association is inherently and innately reinforcing. 
So orgasms do play a really big role in how we have sex and why we do have sex. And I kind of want to go into a little bit about the evolution of orgasms and how they've even come to be and how humans have evolved to experience this. So some aspects of orgasmic experience may be unique to humans, but many of these mechanisms are actually shared across all mammals, all vertebrates, and even invertebrates. So although particular details are likely to show interspecies diversity, the ability of males to produce rhythmic stimulation likely has a common adaptive significance as an honest indicator of evolutionary fitness. So sexual behavior will yield the most pleasure when it is fulfilling adaptive goals, such as improved bonding between parents or forming a new bond with someone of high status. It kind of just increases your reproduction rate since people will experience pleasure with people they're not interested in and stuff like that. So also evolutionary behaviorists note that sexual contact with healthy and attractive meats yield more pleasure. Aspects of health and attractiveness are normally distributed and these behaviors expect that health and attractiveness increase the pleasure and reinforcing quality of sexual behavior, not only because they are statistically associated with greater fertility and therefore greater reproductive success, but also because those sexual partners are necessarily more scarce than partners, more average on genetically endowed qualities. So pleasure has a really, really important role in evolutionary and finding a perfect fate. I kind of want to go into some sex differences and orgasms. Males and females will experience these very, very differently. And the males and females of many species confront different challenges and opportunities with respect to reproductive success. In human females, there's a very large obligate investment for successful reproduction since in order for an offspring to survive, the woman must invest approximately nine months of gestation time along with the associated risk of childbirth. So it's a really, really big investment and females have to kind of consider unconsciously, consciously that there's a lot of risk that does come with having a child. But human males, in contrast, may be able to successfully reproduce with only a single sexual encounter and at a much lower risk. Throughout history, most human females would be able to successfully achieve occasional fertilization we can only produce as many offspring as their gestation times and lifespan would permit. So that's a really, really big difference for where males can produce kind of anytime, anywhere, but for human females, it's a lot different and it's a very different story compared to males. You have the different ovulation periods of females and sometimes there's miscarriages. So there's a lot of factors and variables that go into females producing offspring. The variability in reproductive sex among human males was relatively vast, but it is not uncommon for some males to leave no surviving offspring. And there are substantial differences in the upside and downside risks and opportunities for sexual interaction. And so for these reasons, many women have a large number of contingent factors that influence the frequency and quality of their orgasms. The intense pleasure of orgasms are likely to influence the degree of incentive motivation for sex. On average, a more restricted ability for orgasm, which may only occur with a more selective variety of partners, should make a woman more discriminating in their choice of males. So that's kind of why there's a difference in female and male orgasms, and it's 
primarily due to the reproductive and just general factors that a lot of women do have to consider that males don't, which kind of sucks. So now we've put sex into an evolutionary context, and women actually generally do have lower libidos than men do. This might be because of what Felicia just alluded to, which is that there are so many more contingencies for women to consider before a sexual encounter. On the other hand, men report desiring sex more frequently with more partners and with more variety. Males are also more likely to masturbate, and if they do, more frequently. Other studied measures of sex drive include initiating versus refusing sex and making sacrifices for sex. On the other hand, when looking within genders, sex drive is more variable across women and even within an individual woman over time. These differences appear to hold up in cross-cultural studies, though of course there are individual differences. So what about physiological differences in how males and females experience an orgasm? For both, physiological sexual arousal, as measured by genital temperature, and subjective arousal and desire increase during masturbation, with a greater buildup leading to more pleasurable orgasm. However, these measures decline more quickly and consistently in men. In contrast, while temperature decreases in women post-orgasm, subjective measures of arousal and desire are maintained. This might be something that you or we all have personal experience with and may contribute to the difference in frequency of orgasms during masturbation or with a partner. Shifting gears a bit, in the beginning of this episode, one of the most common reasons I listed for having sex was my hormones were out of control. Let's revisit hormones now. You might think that testosterone causes a higher sex drive since men generally have a higher libido than women do. This is actually a myth and there's been no significant correlation found between testosterone levels and desire in men. If anything, it seems to be masturbation frequency that affects this difference in sex drive. Another myth is that orgasmic pleasure is linked to testosterone or estrogen levels. For both men and women, testosterone or estrogen levels do not appear to be related to orgasmic pleasure. Instead, context of the sexual encounter, whether it was with a partner or alone, seems to be more influential in determining the amount of pleasure. So what exactly is going on with hormones during an orgasm? Two key neuropeptides are involved, oxytocin synthesized from estrogen and vasopressin synthesized from testosterone. During orgasm for both men and women, oxytocin is released and promotes sexual pleasure and emotional bonding. Increased oxytocin correlates with intensity of muscle contractions during an orgasm and the ratings of pleasure of sexual experiences. On the other hand, vasopressin is released during the male arousal phase and is linked to men's drive for sexual expression. There are fewer vasopressin neurons in females and less is known about its overall role in women. So bringing this all together in an oversimplified view, you meet someone, you think that person is attractive or you realize you're in love. Dopamine levels in your brain become elevated and promote release of neuropeptides like oxytocin and vasopressin that drive arousal, pleasure, and motivation. So now that we've gone a little bit through the biology and kind of the definitions of the different parts and 
working gears of sex, I kind of wanted to talk about the research out there that focuses on sexual health research and pleasure. Not surprisingly, most of the sexual health research was very, very male-focused. Yeah, no surprises there. This actually all took a turn in the 2000s as researchers started to focus on women as well. Yay! Women's sexual health is directly affected by women's low status in society, and this low status and subsequent lack of sexual autonomy not only increases risk for sexual health problems, it also decreases ability to obtain treatment and support when a sexual health concern arises. The focus on sexual health research for women is very, very important. Sexual health research, actually, there wasn't much there, but sexual health research surged during the HIV epidemic within the U.S., but also demonstrated the lack of research done on women. Early in the epidemic, women were simply ignored by public health research and practice. Once they could no longer be ignored, they were blamed and viewed as vectors, and seroprevalence rates among men reveal that women are actually not significant vectors. So it wasn't women's fault, but because the way women were treated back then, they were kind of just automatically blamed for the epidemic. To continue, in contrast, rates among women indicate that infection from men is the primary mechanism by which women are contracting HIV. Male-controlled sexual decision-making, male partner violence against women, and histories of sexual assault all contribute to increased HIV risk for women. Once infected, women are not given the support and resources they need as mothers and caretakers of HIV-positive partners and or children. These findings are especially true for marginalized women, such as women of color, poor women, women addicted to alcohol or drugs, and women who exchange sex for drugs or money. And so kind of the HIV epidemic has pointed out a really, really big need for sexual health research in women and how women were just not treated how they should be when it came to research and discovering a way to treat them. For As for sexual health research and pleasure specifically, there has been limited research on the relation between the quality of, a, of sexual experience and risk of unplanned pregnancy and STIs. What evidence there is shows that goals relating to sexual satisfaction shape both risk-taking and the adoption of risk reduction practices, including use of condoms and choice of contraceptive method and whether it is continued. And so what this all means is that sexual satisfaction and pleasure is a very, very important part of sexual health. And in order to enhance sexual well-being, public health practitioners should work to improve sexual self-comfort, alleviate sexual guilt, and promote longer-term relationships. All this is to say that sexual health research and pleasure is very, very important. And incorporating these ideas is pretty important for public health and just enhancing the safety and reducing risk of sex and STDs and STIs. While this research in this field is very slowly growing, if you're an emerging scientist that's interested in this field, please go for it. If you're interested in this field, this is your time to shine because research is kind of lacking in this area. Okay, so now that I've talked a little bit about the research or the lack of research in this field, I kind of wanted to go into why sex education and teaching kids about pleasure is so important and very much needed. And I'm going to start this with a discussion about our own sex and experiences when we were younger. So Chelsea, what was your sex experience oh. like? 
feel like maybe my experience is a little bit different from the norm. Like I actually remember them showing a very graphic video of a baby coming out of a woman's cervix. So <laughs> I had the same thing. I think they were just oh trying God. to uh, maybe scare us and not have children, which is definitely not a way to teach kids about having safe sex by just showing them a live birth when they're 12 or something. I think I was 12 when I saw the video. I don't know when you saw yours. No, I was younger than 12. I think I was in fifth grade. Maybe I was 10. And (laughs) I remember also that I learned um, like about HIV before I heard the word sex in class. I was like, what are they talking about? And my friend, my classmate was like, he wrote it on his arm. He was like, sex. And I was like, what? Oh my goodness. So bad. I think in I think it was seventh grade at the same time we watched the birth video we were given pictures of what different STIs and STDs looked like on people and their genitalia and it was kind of disturbing and that was kind of it they just ended it at that and they taught us how to put on a condom on oh yeah on a wooden dildo when I was a (laughs) freshman in high school and planned Planned Parenthood actually came in and gave a talk about safe sex and using condoms but because we were all really immature I don't think anyone really learned anything except to just play with everything and so I don't think I learned a single thing in my sex ed experience what was your takeaway were you like oh my god I never want to get an STI I'm never going to have sex or were you like okay sure whatever I'm going to ignore this class (laughs) I think I was just so scared of having sex. And I think that was the general sense that my whole school felt. We didn't talk about sex. No one ever talked about it. It was kind of taboo almost in when I was in high school. And it's not uncommon for high schoolers to start having sex, Mm -hmm. but no one talked about it. And if someone did have sex, they were shamed almost. And so it was just a very toxic environment to talk about something that needs to be talked about. I don't know. How about you? Right. I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think that's maybe more similar to my middle school experience because the town that my middle school was in was very like rural. A lot of people were very religious. Um, So we didn't really talk about sex. And in high school, I think we talked about it in class, but other than that, it was all a mystery. And I remember when I got my first period, I wasn't even sure like what that would be. Cause even though we talked about sex in class, we didn't talk about like women's sexual health in class. Right. Um, I kind of had to go to my mom and I was like, okay, this happened. <laughs> like, what do I do? <laughs> I, I guess my school had a pretty good program where when we were in elementary school, they separated the guys and the girls and they taught the girls. Yeah, they taught the girls what periods were, how to use a pad, how to use a tampon and what to expect since that's kind of the age where people start getting their periods. And so when I did get my period, I was pretty prepared, but that's, that's kind of all I learned just like about my own body. Okay, so a little bit better than than (laughs) my situation, but overall there's definitely a lot more work to be done. Yeah. So you did mention that you grew up in kind of like a religious area. So did they talk about waiting until marriage a lot? They actually did not talk about that a lot in class. I think um, Mm -hmm. 
but it's my impression that most people got married when they were pretty young like our age they would be married or out of high school they would be married Mm -hmm. pretty soon um so I think that experience is just like a little bit different than maybe Mm -hmm. millennials living in a bigger city (laughs) maybe (laughs) like I guess this all just shows that sex education is a really really important school subject that really needs to be taught it's the one school subject that is supposed to provide adolescents with the information and skills they need to navigate relationships under sex and sexuality and find the resources they need for obtaining additional information and relevant health services and despite often being framed in the U.S. as a tool for risk reduction quality sex education should be guided by the broader goals of supporting young people's sexual health and well-being and helping them grow into sexually healthy adults. Often, adolescents are told to not have sex rather than how to have safe sex in a way that's pleasurable for both parties, like we said in our discussion, how both of us didn't really learn about that. And failing to address pleasure actually may have implications for sexual coercion, as sex education may be one of the only places that young people learn that sex should be pleasurable and not used in a manipulative and harmful way. And I'll personally, in my sexual education classes, we didn't talk about pleasure at all. And it was more of just, this is how to be safe and not of, this is how you can do it to be enjoyable and to be safe. There's a myth that teaching kids about pleasure would turn them into sex fiends and make them catch more STIs. And that is completely false. Since as we mentioned before, this is a complete opposite. Education on sexual satisfaction actually shapes risk-taking and can influence risk reduction practices. So this could be the use of condoms uh, or contraceptives and having a more open conversation with kids and adolescents about what sex is and how to have it in an enjoyable and good way and just destigmatizing the whole conversation around sex for pleasure. So obviously, learning about sex is super important. At this point, you might be thinking, what are some resources I can use to learn more? Some people turn to porn. Um, There are various reasons that people watch porn, including for arousal, for out of boredom or stress reduction, or general loneliness, or seeing a fantasy play out on screen. Some people use these visual images to learn more about sexual technique um, or situations. However, these pornographic images are not realistic. They often depict more extreme and unsafe scenarios. For example, they'd be a poor resource to learn about communicating about differences in libidos with your partner, as well as boundaries of consent since they push for these more extreme scenarios. On top of all of that, porn itself can actually lead to less real life sex and less satisfying sexual experiences. So instead of going to porn, here are some other resources that you can use to discover and develop your sexuality. There is Rue by Planned Parenthood. This is a chat bot that answers questions about sexual health, relationships, puberty, growing up, and more. It's free and private and their answers are all backed by professionals from Planned Parenthood. Another app is omgyes.com. This is committed to exploring female sexual pleasure and creating better orgasms through new research and science. 
They use video testimonials, stats, and simulation to educate users about stimulation and sexuality. Fuck Yes is a web series that models what consent looks like. In a world where consent is so infrequently talked about, they provide sex-positive videos to show how consent is affirmative and sexy. Eve by Glow is a sex app and period tracker for women who want to take control of their sexual and reproductive health in one platform. Blue Heart and Lover are two apps that lower the accessibility threshold of sex therapy services and provide almost digital sex therapy that cover topics including improving skills in the bedroom, erectile dysfunction, and low libido. Lastly, Juicebox recently launched Slutbot, which is a chatbot that shows you how to sext and talk dirty. So we've talked at length about general male and female differences and a lot about orgasms, but I want to take this opportunity to emphasize that everyone is different. A sexual experience does not require an orgasm to be pleasurable, and pleasure is context-dependent. Some find more by themselves than with others, and that is totally fine. Start exploring, get informed, learn how to make your experiences safe and rewarding, and go out there and develop your sexuality. Thank you all for listening. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Emilio Haworth and Wei Ying, and the deputy editors for the sex and reproduction issue, Kelsey Castle and Wei Ying. And finally, thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. Thank you.